You're listening to the Matheson Employment Law Podcast, presented by Brian Dunn, Head of Matheson Employment Practice. This is a regular podcast series for HR practitioners, employment lawyers, and in-house counsel, focusing on the legal issues relevant to all companies with employees in Ireland. Hello, everyone. You're all very welcome to this morning's webinar. My name is Russell Rochford. I'm a partner in the Employment, Pensions and Benefits Group here at Matheson. For those of you who have followed our Employment Law Masterclass uh, webinars over the last number of months, you know that we've had an obvious focus on all things COVID-19 and the impact that the pandemic has had on employers. For this morning's webinar, though, we'll be focusing on two rather different topics that many employers are now urgently preparing for as a result of Brexit. So that you know, you can also access our Brexit series of webinars on our client learning hub with the most recent webinar chaired by the newly appointed EU Commissioner, Mairead McGuinness. For the first topic this morning, I'll be joined by one of our employment and technology and innovation partners, Deirdre Crowley, who will discuss how employers can approach the international transfer of personal data in light of the Schrems 2 decision and in a post-Brexit world as well. Deirdre is working closely with many multinationals on managing their transition from reliance on privacy shields to other arrangements. And today we'll hear about some of the key themes arising from that work. Deirdre is also going to briefly consider the recent enforcement action by the Irish Data Protection Commissioner against Facebook and Facebook's proceedings in an effort to reverse that action. I'm then delighted to say that we will be joined by our two guest speakers, Tom Hayes and Kevin Duffy, will give us the benefit of their vast experience and insights on the implications of Brexit for multinational employers currently operating European Works Councils under UK law and the growing trend that we're seeing for these EWCs to be converted into Irish law. For those of you who have ever come across the EWC and EWC before, Tom needs no introduction, I'm sure, but for those less familiar with EWCs, Tom is the Executive Director of the Brussels European Employee Relations Group, or BERG as it's commonly known, and he's also the Director of European Union Affairs of the HR Policy Association based out of Washington, D.C. Tom's been involved in industrial relations since 1972 and with EWCs since the early 90s. He established BERG in 2002 and has assisted in the negotiation of EWC agreements in over 80 multinational companies. So I can safely describe Tom as the EWC guru. We're delighted to have him join us here today. Kevin Duffy is also someone who needs no introduction to those working in the industrial relations and employment law sphere. He was deputy chairman of the Labour Court from 1993 to 2003, when he then became the chairman of the Labour Court until his retirement in June 2016. Kevin was also a member of the European Association of Labour Court Judges from 2003 until his retirement in 2016. Amongst the many accolades and high-profile positions that Kevin has held, he is currently the Chairman of the Commission on Public Service Pay, and he's an Honorary Fellow of the National College of Ireland. It's safe to say that there's no one better placed to discuss how the Irish Dispute Resolution Fora are equipped to tackle EWC-related disputes, and we're also delighted that Kevin has been able to join us today. Kevin and Tom will be joined by Brian Dunn, who's the partner and head of the Employment, Pensions and Benefits Group, We'll consider some of the practical issues involved in both setting up and running an EWC under Irish law. Brian has worked closely with Tom and Berg for more than 15 years now on a number of significant Irish EWC projects. Since the Brexit vote, he has been heavily involved in advising a large number of clients on their Brexit options, their Brexit EWC options, 
And he's worked with Tom on the transfer of a number of those bodies to Irish law and the successful defence of challenges to that move before both the UK and the German courts. Brian has also worked with Kevin as an expert trainer to UK governed EWCs moving to Irish law. So it promises to be both a, an informative and also a lively session. So before I turn to Deirdre, I just wanted to mention to you all that you can use the Q&A function that Zoom has to submit questions right throughout the session. And these are only visible to us, the presenters, and we'll do our best to get to as many of those when we have the uh, question and answer session at the end. So turning to Deirdre, first of all, can you tell us about the impact, Deirdre, that the Schrems 2 decision will have for international data transfers? Yes, thank you, Russell, and good morning, everybody. A particularly warm welcome to those of you who are joining us early in the morning, your time, or late in the evening across the globe. Certainly, the impact of Schrems 2 on the, the way in which we internationally transfer data is, is highly significant, and Schrems 2 has fundamentally changed the way we approach this issue. There has been a lot of commentary in the media and from various law firms in relation to the meaning of Schrems 2. And the purpose of today's session is really to bust some myths that have arisen as a result of that commentary and to provide you with some key takeaways in terms of how you can navigate this very complex and difficult area in the wake of Schrems 2. The key headline issue, of course, is that Privacy Shield with effect from the 16th of July 2020 is no longer valid. And in its place, organizations must now consider the mechanism that it uses to transfer data internationally under the GDPR. The key outcome secondary to the fact that Privacy Shield is no longer valid is the piece around standard contractual clauses. And thankfully, standard contractual clauses remain valid, albeit subject to a significant change whereby the Court of Justice of the European Union said that standard model clauses agreements on their own account are no longer valid in and of themselves, and that supplementary measures must be used by data exporters or data controllers in order to give effect to the standard contractual clauses. And today we're going to share with you some of the tools that we have come up with in Matheson in order to give effect to those supplemental measures. These tools are obviously, uh, as a result of our own case management, pending receipt of further guidance from the European Data Protection Board in circumstances where, unfortunately, the decision of the Court of Justice of the European Union is, is most unclear in relation to what constitutes agreeable and acceptable supplementary measures. Later on in the session, we're going to take a look also at international data transfers in the context of Brexit, how that can be achieved, and how best to prepare now for the likelihood that there will not be a trade deal or a data protection agreement in relation to Brexit. We've heard proclamations from the UK that they are keen to ensure that an adequacy arrangement is put in place for the UK. Certainly that's looking unlikely at the moment and the outcome of Shrens 2 has made that even more challenging. So we have some suggestions for you today from the point of view of contractual drafting to best position you to prepare for the eventuality that Brexit may result in no deal with regard to data transfers. Finally, then, we're going to briefly look at the Irish DPC's enforcement action taken against Facebook in relation to its reliance on standard contractual clauses to transfer personal data to the US. We're also keenly awaiting some more guidance, as I mentioned, from the European Data Protection Board. And on the 4th of September, we heard from the European Data Protection Board that a task force has been established to 
set up and draft guidelines addressing what may constitute acceptable supplementary measures in the eyes of the European Data Protection Board. And Deirdre, will the European Data Protection Board guidelines, will they have legal effect? That's a really good question, Russell. And the answer is no, that while the guidance from the European Data Protection Board will be weighty and it will certainly be persuasive, it will not have legal effect in the same way as the decision of the Court of Justice of the European Union in Schrems has legal effect. So uh, it remains to be seen in test case law how the guidelines will be interpreted. And something we're going to touch upon later is, in fact, if various data protection authorities do take enforcement actions against data exporters based in the EEA or controllers based in the EEA, it's likely that those investigations and inquiries may also produce guidance on what constitutes supplemental measures. But right now, it's very much a matter of interpretation as to what constitutes supplemental measures pending receipt of those guidelines and of that clarity. And indeed, it's urgently required. So to move on to the next slide, please, we now look at international transfers and and the ways in which data can be transferred from Europe internationally. And there were three main mechanisms in the GDPR that provided for international transfers of data. The first is an adequacy decision in relation to a third country. And this really was quite a wonderful solution to the safe and lawful transfer of data to a third country because this adequacy type approach means that the European Commission has assessed the data protection standards in a third country and has come to the conclusion that those data protection standards are of an essentially equivalent standard to the standards that apply in Europe. So for example, up until the 16th of July in the case of the US, Privacy Shield amounted to an adequacy decision by the European Commission, such that if you signed up to Privacy Shield and complied with the conditions that it had, you then could transfer data lawfully without a problem to the US. And unfortunately, that adequacy decision is now, of course, void. The second mechanism that we see most commonly used is the mechanism using standard contractual clauses or binding corporate rules. And certainly as as a key takeaway from this session for you to hear as a practical observation, the majority of our clients would rely on standard contractual clauses as the mechanism to be used to transfer international data safely and lawfully, as lawfully as possible. So today we're going to talk to you about a test we've developed called a verification test, which assists data exporters and controllers that are EEA based to engage in a process whereby they can undertake what we describe as a pseudo adequacy assessment. And this pseudo adequacy assessment is akin to a legitimate interest assessment or perhaps a data protection impact assessment and a similar type of risk-based strategy is taken to engage in the verification process as an interim step to continue to use standard contractual clauses. Binding corporate rules are less popular as a mechanism to transfer data internationally on the basis that the process 
to get approval for binding corporate rules is a process that involves engaging with your supervisory authority. In theory, it's an excellent outcome if you can achieve it because it means that globally all of your organizations comply with a consistent and acceptable approach to processing personal data, which is approved by a supervisory authority and results in a method to lawfully transfer data internationally. But because of the length of time and various operational complexities that arise in the binding corporate rules procedure, that's a less common mechanism that's used. Finally, then we have derogations under Article 49. Derogations are less of a mechanism and more of an exception where a data exporter would rely on the consent of the data subject to transfer data internationally, or alternatively may rely on the fact that in order to perform a contract with the data subject, that the data must be transferred internationally. We saw prior to SHREMS 2 that the European Commission's stated objective was to increase the amount of adequacy decisions worldwide. And at the time prior to SHREMS 2, there was a significant push on politically in the European Commission in order to increase that method of, of international data transfer because obviously it was a very satisfactory way for business to transfer data. And unfortunately, the majority of countries on a third country basis do not have an adequacy decision. And therefore, you must rely on either Article 46 or Article 49 as a, as a basis to transfer your data. So if we look at the next slide, the countries that have an adequacy decision are clear pre-SHREMS. And, and it's not an insignificant number of countries. Um, to be clear, Canada has a partial adequacy decision based on the PIPEDA regime. And we now see, of course, that the, the US Privacy Shield is off that list post-SHREMS too. In terms of, of Brexit and the UK, to be absolutely clear in relation to the status with regard to transfers of data to the UK right now, of course, they are unproblematic. So the landscape in terms of legal compliance has not changed. And up until the 31st of December, there was no issue with regard to transferring personal data to the UK. Post 31 December, again, depending on what happens, but assuming for the purposes of this session that there is no deal in relation to the transfer of data and there is no adequacy finding with effect from the 31st of December uh, in favor of the UK, alternative methods must be engaged in to lawfully transfer data to the UK. So the UK will be treated as a third country for the purposes of data protection. And again, you're back to considering your mechanisms under Article 45 and Article 49 for that purpose. We have developed a system in Matheson that we are engaging in right now to assist our clients to best prepare for the eventuality of a no-deal Brexit. And as part of that, we have developed various types of language to include in agreements to facilitate the eventuality that we may be dealing with a third country status with effect from the 31st of December. We typically call the clause an activation clause. And the activation clause exists within the context of your normal commercial agreement. So take, for example, a standard supplier agreement. You would have your activation clause that confirms as a matter of certainty that the parties to the agreement agree to using standard contractual clauses as a mechanism for the international transfer of data between your organization and the UK post 31 December. The important feature of that clause is that it links the standard contractual clause as a supplementary agreement to the principal agreement. 
And it's important that there's language in there to confirm that the agreements are standalone agreements. So, for example, as a practical takeaway, avoid inserting language into the model clauses agreement that refers to the data exporter as the supplier and the data importer as the provider of services, for example. Deirdre, do you mind if I just jump in there, if I can, just to confirm? So the clause that we're recommending to insert is basically an agreement by the parties that they will use the standard contractual clauses as a mechanism to transfer data between their country and the UK in the event that there is no adequacy decision. Is that correct? That's correct, Russell. And this is a key piece because, again, there's conflicting messages coming from the media. There are conflicting messages coming from various law firms that, you know, it's best to perhaps take a wait and see approach and do nothing until it's clear as to what is going to happen on the 31st of of December. But for those of you who were around after Safe Harbour was deemed to be invalid, which I certainly was in practice at that time, and now we're dealing with Schrems 2 and the Privacy Shield being deemed invalid, the last thing you want to happen to you and to your organisation is that you, you find yourselves in the flurry of a panic in late December over the Christmas break where effective 31 December, you don't have a lawful mechanism to transfer data to the UK. So we're suggesting to our clients that the best approach is to be prepared and to have this activation clause in their service agreements, which only takes effect on the occasion of a no-deal Brexit or on the occasion of adequacy not arising. So it's a very practical arrangement whereby the parties agree to have a plan B effectively in the event of a no-deal Brexit and you avoid that uh, inevitable panic. So if we move on to the next slide then, please, Susan. Uh, We talk about the implications of Schrems 2 for business. Again, to reiterate the message, and and it's worth repeating given its significance, Schrems 2 gives effect to the standard contractual clauses agreements. And this is a material point for many in business because if we cast our minds back for a moment to consider the history to Schrems 2 in a very focused way to, to understand why this is so significant, we see that the Irish High Court referred 11 questions to the Court of Justice of the European Union to consider in terms of the validity of standard contractual clauses generally. And one of those questions was specifically whether standard contractual clauses would continue to have effect as a lawful basis to transfer personal data internationally. And significantly in Schrems to the Court of Justice of the European Union did not answer that specific question. And in fact, the Court of Justice bundled a lot of the 11 questions into subsections and selectively answered those 11 questions. And significantly, it may be of interest to hear that the question of the validity of Privacy Shield was not a material point. That that was a point that the Court of Justice of the European Union decided to deal with, despite the fact that even the Advocate General, uh, who published an opinion in December 2019, who said that this was not the right case, to address Privacy Shield, the Court of Justice of the European Union, somewhat of a surprising approach, decided to use this case as the vehicle to deem Privacy Shield invalid. So we know that we can rely on standard contractual clauses to transfer data internationally. We know that we have to now turn our minds to drafting supplemental measures that will give effect to that transfer such that the transfer to the US results in an equivalent standard of data protection to Europe, for example. And the question is how we go about that exercise in the absence of clear guidance from the Court of Justice of the European Union. 
some of the pronouncements of the court do assist us in approaching that exercise. And we have developed a three-step process, which we're describing as a verification process to assist our clients at a very high level to engage in this exercise. The first part of the verification process is to consider the legal regime in the third country and to seek to form a view in relation to whether third-party authorities, such as surveillance authorities, can access personal data in the third country. If you come to a conclusion as an organisation that uh, you can transfer data on the basis of standard contractual clauses, if you're satisfied that surveillance authorities cannot access the data and that you can put in place safeguards that are an essentially equivalent standard, then you pass the test and you can rely on model clauses agreements and transfer the personal data internationally. If, however, you find that the third party country does have a facility whereby third party authorities can access personal data, specifically surveillance authorities, you then need to ask yourself if there are safeguards or mechanisms that you can put in place to seek to prevent that scenario from arising. And while that's a very difficult thing to do, there are certain steps that can be taken to seek to do that and I'll address that shortly. The second part of the verification test after you consider whether surveillance authorities can access the data is the type of data that you are transferring. So obviously vanilla type HR data such as name, email address, home address is less high risk than special category personal data such as health data, biometric data and will probably be of less interest to third-party surveillance authorities. So it's a question of analysing the risk there. Finally, then, we encourage, as the third part of our verification test, that data exporters consider an Article 45.2 type assessment, which is the adequacy assessment that the European Commission engages in when considering the adequacy of a third country to receive data from the EEA. This is, again, a complex exercise, but if you follow the language in Article 45.2 and engage in best efforts to address that, that will go some distance in our view to conducting a very well-founded adequacy assessment to support your model clauses supplemental measures. Moving on then to talk about what additional safeguards are, we have again come up with some high-level thoughts that may be of assistance to you when case managing this in your own organisations. The first additional safeguard is in fact something that the Court of Justice of the European Union did refer to in the Schrems II decision, and that's additional security measures such as encryption that can be used to protect data. Other typical measures are pseudonymization, such that personal data, if accessed by a third-party surveillance organisation, for example, would not make much sense in the absence of other data that would identify the individual. Of course, and I'm, I'm saying this for completeness, although it may be very obvious, if the data is anonymous, it falls outside the scope of the GDPR. So it doesn't require an international data transfer mechanism at all and can be treated as safe data to transfer. Finally, then we look at contractual measures and policy measures as additional safeguards that can be put in place. 
when I refer to contractual measures, the type of language that we're looking at is, for example, contracting between the data exporter in the EEA, which may be your organization, the controller, putting in place clause with your opposite number, the data importer, such that they put you on notice in writing in the event that they receive a request from a third party authority to access the data. You can also put in language to ensure that that request is refused in the absence of specific, explicit and informed consent from you. And finally, then we look at our third safeguard, which is the implementation of policies between the data exporter and the importer in relation to supplemental measures. And we've come up with a law enforcement policy that talks about the protocol to be followed in the event that there is a third party request for information. So, the, the take-home point from all of this is in the absence of clear guidance from the CJAU and from the EDPB, it is a question of a matter of interpretation and really standing back and considering the type of, of data that's processed internationally by you. And it's a question of putting in place contractual terms that answer that specific and tailored data that's being processed. So if we move on to the next slide, please, Susan. We're looking now just briefly at the enforcement action by the Irish Data Protection Authority into Facebook Ireland. And this matter has attracted an enormous amount of media attention and obviously it's of material significance to any data exporter exporting data to the US using standard contractual clauses. There have been a number of inaccurate reports as to the status of the issue and as to exactly what's happening. And I'm going to take the opportunity now to share with you uh, the position in relation to that enforcement action. So on the 20th of August, the Data Protection Commission in Ireland commenced an inquiry into Facebook's reliance on standard contractual clauses for the purposes of international transfers of data. It's important to emphasize that that enforcement action, which was invoked under section 110 of the Irish Data Protection Act, that enforcement action is what's called an own volition inquiry. So the enforcement action is ongoing. No decisions have been made. While, of course, the Irish Data Protection Commission has requested that Facebook ceases to use standard contractual clauses as its mechanism for transferring data internationally. The key word to emphasize there is requested and the answer that Facebook came up with to this own volition inquiry was to institute its own set of legal proceedings to seek to halt the inquiry. And it has taken judicial review proceedings in respect of the DPC's enforcement action under Section 110. So it very much remains to be seen what happens there. It doesn't mean, for everybody on this session, it doesn't mean that there is any bar now to using standard contractual clauses. It simply means that this case is certainly one to watch. And while it may set precedent for data exporters in the EEA, it certainly is a standalone case just at the moment. And it remains to be seen how that will be developed. And in our view, it's going to take some time for it to conclude. So in circumstances where you are relying on standard contractual clauses to transfer your data to the US, we hope that you found this session useful and certainly would be happy to take any questions at the end of the session in terms of, of where to go next from here. 
we would strongly suggest that you keep a close eye on your own data protection authorities' guidance in the area. We've seen conflicting guidance coming from some data protection authorities. And just to call out two, we saw one in Belgium, for example, saying that all data transfers on the basis of model clauses agreements should cease, whereas we see others from Germany, for example, giving assistance in relation to how to approach supplemental measures when relying on standard contractual clauses as a transfer mechanism. Interestingly, to give you some feedback in relation to what the Irish DPC has said in the wake of SHREMS 2, they have not openly come out in their press release to say that standard contractual clauses are valid, which is obviously interesting and reinforces why they, they have taken their action against Facebook. So it's certainly one to watch. Thank you, Deirdre. And that I suppose, wraps up the first part of the session. So if we can move now to the second part of the session, which is European Works Councils and the impact that Brexit is going to have on them. As I mentioned, we're joined by two guest speakers, Tom Hayes and Kevin Duffy, to work with Brian to explain what EWCs are and the impact that Brexit will have on UK governed, UK law governed EWCs moving to Irish law. So first, if I can turn to Tom, just to ask you, Tom, to explain to us uh, what European Works Councils are and then also what does Brexit mean for EWCs that are currently located in the UK? Uh, Let me start by introducing a piece of information that may be relevant to actually both sections of this webcast. About an hour ago, the European Commission announced it's taken legal action against the UK over the breach of the withdrawal agreement because of the UK's internal market bill. Now, it seems to me that this action ups the the stakes in the negotiation for an agreement between the UK and uh, the European Union. And my money, and my money, by the way, for a long time has been on a no-deal agreement, but I think that bet is looking a lot more secure at the moment. And of course, as Deirdre has just mentioned, the lack of an agreement will certainly put an adequacy decision for the UK very, very much at risk. So that's just a piece of information, hot news, breaking, as they say. But back to the subject in hand, just to start at the basics, um, European Works Councils applied to companies with more than a thousand employees in the European Union and at least 150 in two different countries. And when we talk about the European Union, we're of course also including the European Economic Area, Norway, Liechtenstein and Iceland. Contrary to much popular and believe Switzerland is not included in either the EU or the EEA. So European Works Councils are transnational bodies for dialogue between management and employee representatives from across Europe. They are not bargaining bodies, not collective bargaining bodies, nor can they conclude any sort of agreement. At best, they can offer an opinion, a non-binding opinion in any way, on proposed management plans. The interesting thing is that for instance, if you're Volkswagen, you're in Germany, so your EWC is going to be subject to German law. If you're Danone, you're based in France, so your EWC is going to be subject to French law. But if you're a non-EU headquartered company, American, Japanese, Canadian, South African, and increasingly Chinese, then your central management is located outside of the European Union, and that central management is free to pick a jurisdiction within the European Union in which to legally locate its European Works Council. It's exclusively a management decision. It's not open to negotiation. It's not open to consultation. And it's not based on any particular criteria 
other than the decision of management as where it thinks best to legally locate its European Work Council. The one criteria is that you have to have a legal entity in the country that you pick to act as the central manager. And in my view, that means that legal entity has to have at least one employee, i.e. the manager who acts the representative agent to deal with the EWC. So that's just an introduction, Russell. Great. Thanks, Tom. So EWCs based in the UK will basically have to move now to a new legal home, more or less. And can you, first of all, just address whether or not those UK-based EWCs can move now? And then also, which jurisdiction do you recommend they relocate to? Well, let me answer the second question. I wouldn't be on this call if I wasn't recommending Ireland. And everybody knows in the EWC world, I have long recommended Ireland as the jurisdiction of choice. Now, it's not because I'm Irish, which I obviously am, because for a long time, I recommended the UK to large multinational companies. And some of those listening on this call will well know that. Do they have to move? Yes, because you cannot leave base a European Works Council in a country that's not within the framework of European law and subject to the jurisdiction of the Court of Justice of the European Union. If you have a transnational dispute, you know, the logic of the single market is that that transnational dispute ultimately, if necessary, gets resolved at the level of the Court of Justice of the European Union. So yes, they have to move. Now, there's no precise figures, but I guess there's about somewhere between 150 and 200 European Works Councils legally located in the UK. And it's probably 50-50. 50% of them would be UK companies, which like Volkswagen would have to have had the European Works Council in their home jurisdiction. You're thinking of, for instance, somebody like Rolls-Royce, you know, or Jaguar Land Rover. Just a couple of quick examples, you know, Boots the Chemist, again, for, for example. And the other 50 would be American companies, which would have picked the UK. The reason being they had large numbers of employees there. But if you're operating under the subsidiary requirements, the fallback position, and a number of companies are, such as HP, HPE, Oracle, then you can move anytime you want because the Central Arbitration Committee in the UK confirmed that in a case taken against the company, against HP. So they can move anytime they want. If you have an agreement, the matter is more problematic. There may be language in your agreement which allows you to move. There may not be. But an agreement is an agreement, and it generally says it's subject to a particular law, and you, you know, one party agreement cannot unilaterally change that. So what we advise companies to do is conditionality. A little bit like Deirdre was saying, you know, on the standard contractual clauses thing. You know, conditionality, i.e., at the stroke of midnight on the 31st of December, when the UK is no longer a valid jurisdiction in which to base your European Work Council, then management automatically renominates its representative agent in the country of its choice. And for me, the country of choice is Ireland. And if you want to ask me why Ireland, I'll tell you why. No, we all think that Ireland is undoubtedly the best country for everyone in the world to live in. But if you can tell us that, it'd be great. Why would you recommend Ireland as an attractive destination for these EWCs, Tom? Well, actually, let me correct you there, Russell. Ireland, France, I don't necessarily think Ireland is the best country to live in, but it's the best country to do business in. So let's be clear about that. Right? Enough, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm an old Northside Dubliner, so, you know, my loyalty, my loyalty is run deep. Why? First of all, language. Never, ever underestimate the importance of language. And by the way, for those listening, this was the same for data protection issues. 
I'm involved in a case at the moment, I won't mention the company, before the Central Arbitration Committee in the UK. There's a thousand pages of evidence and submissions. Now, it involves an American company. It's in English, very badly written English as opposed to goodly written Irish English. But leave that aside. Just imagine if that was in German or French or Spanish or Italian and you're sitting in Palo Alto or Chicago or New Jersey and you need that translated for you or you need to attend the court and you're sitting there saying, what's going on? What's going on? What's he doing? Language is critical when it comes to transnational issues. So that's the first. Secondly, the Irish EWC legislation has been adjudged by the Commission and Kevin will come on to talk about this a little bit later has been on par with anybody else. So... That's fine. Thirdly, we've got a legal system that most Anglo-Saxon companies, and I'm largely talking about Americans here, but Canadians and so on, can understand. We have a business environment in Ireland that's supportive. We're not hostile to business. And finally, we've got a, a political framework in Ireland of stability and security. And all of those things weigh in the decision. So I have actively advised companies to move to Ireland, and they are moving to Ireland. I'm not going to name any names, you know, in this, but they know who they are. But once that have publicly said they're moving to Ireland, already HP, HPE, Oracle, just to name a couple. I, I might add, Google is currently in the process of negotiating the establishment of the European Works Council, and it's decided to base it in Ireland. You know, so it's the place to be. That's what I thought you'd say, Tom. Thank you very much. Now, just to bring in Brian, if I can, there's obviously a process that needs to be followed to bring a UK law governed EWC to Ireland. So, Brian, can you talk to us about the process that needs to be adhered to to convert to an Irish law EWC? Yes, thanks, Russell. And good morning, everybody. Unsurprisingly, Brexit or anything even remotely like it just isn't catered for in the directive. And at this point in the Brexit saga, we're very used to all things Brexit-related being notoriously complex and impossible to find a solution to. So actually, on this particular aspect of the overall saga, it's refreshingly straightforward. It doesn't need to be unduly complex. And the solution that Tom was talking about, that Tom and I have talked about for the last couple of years and, and deployed for a number of clients already, it's based on the simple premise in the directive that non-EU headquartered employers are freely entitled to nominate an entity within the EU to be the representative agent. And the solution flows from that. And other than the requirement that that nomination be in writing, there's absolutely no other prescription or detail or conditions attached to the right to appoint your representative agent. In the only two cases that have really dealt with this point to date, they both collectively confirm that it can be a fairly casual process. So, for example, in Manpower, a decision before the Superior French Courts back in 2014, the court there accepted that an email from the US parent to the UK entity appointing it as the representative agent was sufficient. And likewise, the CEMEX case in 2016 also held that a simple letter from the Mexican parent to a UK entity was sufficient for that purpose. So, If you start from that premise, you can get a sense of how uncomplex this can actually be. And the approach that that Tom was talking about that we've deployed for a lot of clients, it, it kind of, there are two options here, and that depends on whether you're looking at an EWC that is operating under the subsidiary requirements, which as Tom explained, are basically 
the default rules, you'll find them at the back of the Irish legislation if you fail to reach an agreement with the employer representatives at the end of the three-year period. These are the rules that will be imposed as a matter of law upon the employer and the employer representatives. Or alternatively, in the second scenario, if the employer has successfully negotiated and agreed a form of agreement with the employer representatives during that three-year period, that's the second scenario. And if it's the second, it's a little bit more restrictive for the reasons already explained, but again, it's not by any means beyond the solution. So to answer your question in terms of what the actual process looks like, the steps we have been following, let's deal with an SOR EWC first of all. And in short, it starts with the parent writing a letter or sending an email to the entity that it wants to become its representative agent to say, as of X date, we want the Irish entity, the Irish code to become the representative agent for the purpose of our obligations under the directive and under the Irish implementing legislation. At the same time, the parent will probably write an email to the incumbent representative agent, so in this case, to the UK Co., to advise them that the Irish Co. is taking over as representative agent. Now, obviously, this is all intergroup, so there's no controversy to this. There's going to be no issue on the UK's part. And then the third step, and this is where the sequence is really quite important, the third step would be incumbent management writing to the employee representatives to let them know that the employer at parent level has decided to replace the UK Co. as a representative agent with the Irish company. Now, because there's nothing in the directive around any of this process and there's no case law that deals with it really, that's not a strict legal requirement. It's more a matter of good relationship management in that for an employer, when they're doing something, it's always best that the employer is the one to tell the employee representatives rather than for them to hear it independently. And likewise, you always want to manage the timing on your terms as an employer. So that is a critical step in this process. One broader step that could easily be overlooked is just at parent level, making sure that whatever process the company goes through to reach that decision and to issue that nomination, that it's done in accordance with the the relevant corporate governance rules of that company. So just to flesh that out a little bit, if we're talking about a Californian technology company that is moving its representative agent from the UK to Ireland, well then the board of the Californian tech company just needs to make sure that that decision-making process accords with Californian corporate law. And that's not a difficult thing to get right by any means. You just have to remember to do it, which is why I've included it here on the checklist. So that's for the EWCs that operate under the the SORs. If you're looking at an EWC that has a, a negotiated agreement in place, it is a slightly different scenario in that the employer has committed to a certain set of terms and conditions, which will include a clause that identify UK law as the governing law. And the same as any other contractual obligation, it can't unilaterally change that and decide we are moving to Irish law. So it does have to find a way around that. And in the early days of Brexit, actually, there was um, a couple of kind of nuclear options proposed as to how you would go about this. The first was that the employer would simply terminate the agreement and At that point, it would be outside the scope of the restriction. The second one was probably equally impractical, and that was to suggest that you engage with the employer representatives to seek their consent to move to Irish law. And in reality, both of those options were were not going to work. So the solution, Tom, and I have deployed for clients, and I 
think it's a lot more strategic and thankfully a lot less confrontational, is the conditionality approaches he outlined. It's broadly the same as the steps you would follow for an SOR EWC. The only difference is it's a conditional appointment that doesn't come into play until at this point, most likely 11 p.m. on New Year's Eve when the UK is no longer part of the EU. And the narrative for the employer is that as a consequence of Brexit, the employer that we are currently using as our representative agent will no longer be in the EU post-Brexit. So we have to find the new representative agent. So in accordance with our right under the directive to appoint a representative agent, we are moving to the Irish entity. And as a consequence, Irish law will now become the governing law for the EWC agreement. But I think a critical part of that process is making it clear in the communication to the employee representatives and indeed to the Irish Co that it's on the basis that the Irish Co will continue all other terms of the EWC agreement. So the strategy isn't by any means tearing up the existing agreement and starting from scratch again. It's just as a matter of frustration, really, to put it in contract terms, we have to come up with a change to the governing law clause within the agreement. And at this point, we have successfully transitioned a number of clients to operating under Irish law under their subsidiary requirements. We are on the way to transitioning a number of clients who have existing agreements in place. And so far, while we have seen some, some challenges, it has by and large been successful. I was going to ask, Brian, actually, is it possible for a person or a body to bring a legal challenge to a conversion? It absolutely is. And I think employers can expect and should be ready for that challenge. The good news for employers, however, though, is that so far, all of the challenges that we have seen have been unsuccessful on the employee's part and the employer's position is becoming stronger and stronger. In terms of where that challenge can come from, at this point in time, employers are probably fighting a war on two fronts in that the challenge could be mounted before the Irish courts or equally could be challenged in the UK before the Central Arbitration Committee. And I think certainly while negotiations continue, any body that will be challenging this that doesn't want to go to Irish law strategically will probably pick fighting it in the UK because that's the set of rules they'll be most familiar and comfortable with. In terms of what the prospects of that challenge are, there are three cases I've outlined here which really sum up the employer's position at this point in time. And, and you'll see each one has kind of built upon the earlier one to ultimately culminate in the, the HPE case that was before the CSE in 2019. Just to start back at the, the start with this, Holbud was a case referred by the, the Polish Commercial Court to the Court of Justice of the European Union. It actually had nothing to do with EWCs at all. It was a case under Polish corporate law about whether or not Polish company could transfer its registered office to, to Luxembourg from Warsaw in circumstances where it was keeping all of its actual operations and physical presence in Warsaw. And in that case, the court agreed that inherent in the right of freedom of establishment is the right to move your registered office to another location if that is the, the employer's choice at that point in time. So the relevance of this decision to what we're talking about is it fully recognized a scenario that we're probably going to be dealing with, where the employer is moving the, the central management of a particular operation in terms of the EWC to Ireland, where it may not actually have a whole lot of 
substance or presence here and where there are other more obvious countries within the EU where it has much greater physical presence or headcount. So that was certainly a very good start for employers in looking at this argument. Years later, we then had the DXC case before the German Labour Court. And this is a case that Tom and I were actually involved in. In fact, it was one of two cases that year where we represented a, a US tech client that was looking to move an EWC from German law to Irish law. And we don't need to bring you into the detail of this case, but the main point was, in that case, the German Labour Court upheld an employer's right under the directive to transfer responsibility for those obligations from a German company to an Irish company, and it was upheld on appeal. So again, a very useful judgment for the employers. And bit by bit, we were getting closer to the kind of question that we're actually looking at now. But until the HBE case from last year, we didn't actually have a case on all fours which dealt with the, the factual question of can an employer move from UK law to Irish law? And again, this is a case that Tom and I were involved in with HPE's UK lawyers as well, because obviously there were Irish issues involved as well as UK issues. And just to give you a bit of context here, HPE were some way into a three-year negotiation period with the employer representatives in regard to a new agreement. Brexit then occurred. HPE was negotiating via its UK representative agent. But there were obvious questions over whether that agent was even going to be part of the EU at the end of the three-year period. So HPE decided the best thing to do at that point was to transfer the representative agent to the Irish entity. And as a consequence, Irish law then governed the process. The UK employee representatives challenged this, and it ultimately ended up before the, the CAC. HPE's position was, even if the directive doesn't expressly address the right to, to redesignate. It must be inherent in the right to appoint your central management that if necessary or if appropriate, you have the right to redesignate. Unite, acting for the employer representatives, argued on the other hand that if you imply into that the right to redesignate, well, then an employer can redesignate or as frequently or repeatedly as it wants to suit its own purposes that that would create its own legal uncertainty and disadvantages for the employees. Now, the CAC robustly found in favour of the employer on this. It did agree that if an employer was repeatedly redesignating to suit its own purposes, that it may reach a point where it is acting in bad faith, and in those circumstances, the transfer would be invalid. But it agreed in the particular circumstances here that Brexit and the uncertainty it created was a plausible basis for the employer to transfer to the Irish entity. And on that basis, it upheld the transfer as valid. Now, a couple of other side things to take from that case. The CAC also expressly endorsed the Polbud decision and the DXC decision, and went so far as to say that uh, it recognised an employer's lawful right to redesignate, even if it was solely to avail of a less onerous legislation in another member state. So what lawyers would often refer to as forum shopping, where you find the jurisdiction where the implementation of the directive is most favorable to the employer. So that really sums up where the law is at this point in time and why we would be so comfortable about an employer's prospects of being able to defend a challenge. But definitely the challenges will come. And while none of us have a crystal ball, I certainly would feel that if the Irish Labour Court was faced with the same question and the same facts, that it would reach a broadly similar conclusion to what the CAC had to say. Though obviously, Kevin's view on that will certainly be a lot more interesting. Than 
But I had a very quick comment on that. I know lawyers have to be a little bit careful, but I'm a lawyer, so I don't have to be careful. The chances of any challenges are less than nil. Um, it's simply not going to happen. Just think of it this way. Who can decide, other than a company, where it's going to locate any activity? And an EWC, company-related activity, a judge, nowhere anywhere in Europe, can't order a company to locate any activity anywhere. Full stop. Mm. So the chance of any social chat succeeding are nil. And the unions and EWCs know this. What they're actually much more concerned about, and this is not the subject of today's discussion, but I'll just put it on the table. What they're actually much more concerned about is trying to keep UK representatives on EWCs, no matter where they're located. Yeah? Because automatically, on the 31st of December, UK employees no longer have a legal right to be represented on European works councils. And they are now involved, and I was just in a case around this over the last day or two, they're now desperately trying to argue to companies that they should keep their UK representatives on the EWC into the future. My own view on that is that that's unwise. I know some companies, a lot of companies are going to do so. My own view is that it's unwise because it creates all sorts of legal complications in the future. But the question in hand, will a legal challenge to move jurisdictions succeed? Not a chance. All right. Um, thanks, Tom. Brian, if you don't mind, I'm going to bring you back if, if you can to one Yeah, no problem. There during your, your chat there about the, the disputes and challenges. So what happens if an employer doesn't have a significant presence in Ireland to be its representative agent? Yeah, well, I'll, I'll deal with this very quickly, Russell, because I know you're keen to bring Kevin in as well. Yeah. It comes up a lot, and some of the clients we've been talking to in relation to moving to Irish law, that is often one of the first questions. I've set out a little bit of detail on this on the next slide. The starting point, again, is that the directive expressly recognises an employer's right to appoint its representative agent within the EU, and there are no qualifications in the directive. There are no prescriptions around this as to what an employer has to meet. So I don't see any apparent substance qualifications to this at all. As a matter of legal interpretation, there's nothing in the directive. There's no case law on this. So at this point in time, I'm reasonably comfortable saying that there is no substance requirement, but at the same time, it still is a case-by-case -case assessment. So I think given that challenges could well still be expected, I think employers need to make sure not to leave themselves overly exposed to a fragile set of facts. So, and Tom made the point at the outset, as a general rule of practice, we would always suggest that the employer is talking about transferring it to a corporate entity, so I mean a company, and that it has at least one management level employee in there. Now, we did have a couple of clients talking to us about appointing a branch in Ireland, an Irish branch of a foreign company. I think that's too exposed because you could end up having to defend it. And if you lost, well, then by default, the foreign company is going to be the representative agent and the governing law of that jurisdiction will apply by default. And if that happens to be an Irish branch of a French or a German entity, well, then your plan will have definitely backfired. So I, I wouldn't be taking that approach. Again, I just repeat the point about having one management level employee in there. If there's scope and flexibility to assign more employees to the entity, well, then definitely you should take the opportunity to do so. There's certainly nothing to suggest the employee has to be based on Irish soil. So to me, it seems quite straightforward to assign management capacity from other jurisdictions to the Irish entity. And it's just a matter of 
checking in with local lawyers in that jurisdiction as to what that process is to paper that transfer. And we've certainly done it, as you and I both know, in lots of other contexts. So it's not that difficult to achieve. As I say, I think if challenges come, this is one of the points that employers will be challenged on. So I think if it's something as easy as this to get right and you can just add some additional substance to it, employers should be taking the opportunity to do so. Thanks, Brian. Kevin, if I can bring you in now, obviously there's lots of EWCs moving to Ireland and the flow is only going to become more significant as we grow closer to 31st of December. So if I can get your views, Kevin, first of all, on um, how the Irish dispute resolution system works here. Okay. Good morning or good afternoon, depending on where everybody is. The Irish dispute resolution system, I suppose, can be traced back to 1946 when the Industrial Relations Act of that year was enacted and the Labour Court established. So the court has been in existence since that time. It has changed over the years. It has been reformed. The range of issues that come within its jurisdiction has been expanded. And the most recent reform was in 2015 with the enactment of the Workplace Relations Act. The court operates now within a system where there are two bodies involved in the dispute resolution process, a body called the Workplace Relations Commission, which is a first instance body, and I'll I'll talk about that a little bit more later on, and the Labour Court, which is the Court of Appeal in, in all matters. It has some first instance jurisdiction, but generally it operates as a, as a court of appeal. Now, there are two types of dispute that can be processed within that system. There are disputes concerning individuals, individual rights, and they are dealt with at first instance by the WRC. They're heard by an adjudication officer who issues a decision and there's an appeal to the Labour Court. Now, the appeal to the Labour Court is a full appeal. It's, it's what's technically referred to as a, a de novo appeal. So it's not a review of the decision at first instance. The case is heard again. Now, in collective disputes, the matter must go first to the WRC, but not for a decision, but for what's referred to as conciliation. And conciliation is, in reality, mediation. And if the dispute is resolved in that way, well, off the parties go. If it's not, it's referred to the Labour Court. And the Labour Court issues recommendations to the parties on how the dispute should be resolved. So that's basically how the the system works. I'm sure people are interested in, in how this all fits in with EWCs, but we talk about the legislation later on. But over the years, the Labour Court, I was chairman of the Labour Court for 13 years, so you know people would say, well, he would say that, wouldn't he? But it's generally accepted as having developed a very considerable expertise, and it has had a very good track record in resolving disputes which at times appear to be quite intractable. So it has a a, a long track record. It has a good reputation and standing within the country. And it has demonstrated that its capacity to adapt, because in the early days, 
It was dealing with straightforward employer-employee disputes. Nowadays, it deals with very complex legal issues. All of the legislation transposing European directives in Irish law end up in the Labour Court. And it has developed a very considerable body of case law in those areas. There is an appeal from the Labour Court in these matters to the High Court. There aren't that many appeals, and there are even fewer successful appeals. There are some. Courts don't always get things right, but there have been very few. The Labour Court has also, in dealing with European right issues, made references to the the Court of Justice on, on several occasions. Very good. Thanks, Kevin. And can you talk to us about what the Irish legislation says about disputes in the context of of what you've talked about there? Well, I presume your question is mainly directed towards EWCs. Correct. Now, there is a problem with the Irish legislation, in in my view, and Tom and Brian and I have discussed this and and looked into this over the last uh, number of months. Firstly, there haven't been that many EWCs located in Ireland, and there certainly haven't been many disputes relating to EWCs in Ireland. So in this area, you know, there isn't a body of case law that we refer to. What the legislation provides is, and there are anomalies in it, and there are, there are several lacuna in it, what it provides that in respect to disputes involving individuals, disputes about penalisation of employee representatives or employee representatives not being paid and the rights and obligations in relation to employee representatives. That goes through the straightforward system that I've referred to. The Workplace Relations Commission for a first instance hearing followed by an appeal to the Labour Court with the possibility of a further appeal to the High Court. That's straightforward. When you get into the collective elements, or the collective type disputes, there are problems because the legislation there provides for two types of dispute, really. One where there's a dispute around confidential information. And that's referred to the Labour Court, but the legislation provides that rather than dealing with the matter itself, the Labour Court should appoint an arbitrator. And disputes concerning the interpretation of EWC agreements, likewise, go straight to the Labour Court, and again, it provides for the appointment of an arbitrator. Now, there isn't any express provision in the Irish legislation to deal with disputes where the subsidiary requirements apply, for example. And the concept or the notion of using an arbitrator really is out of line with what happens in every other type of dispute. So that's clearly a matter that needs to be to be looked at, and we have been working on dealing with. The reason why it hasn't been rectified to date is because the issue hasn't arisen to date, but it is likely to arise fairly quickly with the influx of a number of European work councils. And it's a matter now of of working with the relevant government departments to get the model right. Well, could I just add on that, Russell, that 
we already know of a number of European Works Councils that are moving to Ireland, or already have moved to Ireland, that have previously been involved before the courts in the UK. So we're looking at a, some European Work Councils that already have a litigation track record. And you know, I think very soon, you know, and by very soon I mean very soon, we could see cases being referred to the Irish Labour Court or to the Workplace Relations Commission. So it's a problem that needs to be addressed urgently unless we find ourselves in an uncomfortable situation. That's understood, Tom. And, and Kevin, in your view, what can be done to put these deficiencies right? Um, I think the, the legislation can be changed. I, uh, that's, that's the simple answer to that. And I think the argument for changing the legislation is so compelling that it's difficult to envisage a situation where the government wouldn't act to do so. And I think the other point that is relevant here is one of the things that we've already prepared proposals on how the law should be changed. We're not going to reinvent the wheel. We're simply advocating that what's available for every other type of dispute should be available for these types of disputes. Where it may differ from what happens in in other European countries, and certainly in the UK, is that the tradition within our system is that you don't just jump into court as your first reaction to a dispute. Because the whole system, as I've described it earlier, is that the, the Labour Court is the end of the road. It's not the start of the road. It's often referred to as the court of last resort, is a term that's frequently used. And that means that the dispute should be referred in the first instance to an adjudication process, right? or in a collective dispute, that it goes to mediation. And that the first attempt should be to try and resolve the dispute by agreement between the parties. And it's only that fails that it moves on. So that model is already mm. there. We're not going to have to, we don't have to reinvent it. It's simply a question of taking what is provided for in the Workplace Relations Act and applying it to these situations. So I don't see I, difficulty in doing that. Can I add to what Kevin says there? I've been involved in a lot of European Works Council litigation in various European countries, the UK, France, Germany. And in all of them, as Kevin says, they jumped straight from a dispute between the EWC and management into a court. And the proposal we have developed is very simple. Slot EWCs into the generality of the Irish labour system, which is mediation to first stop, you know, a chance to resolve the dispute with some expertise from an independent mediator before you go to court. I've had the opportunity of having informal discussions with folk in the European Commission around this who are aware of the lacuna in the Irish legislation and we would very welcome the sort of proposals that we put together, mediation before you go to law. So that's the way to go. And Kevin and myself have written a paper on this and we've made it available to those with an interest in the matter. So we're not just stating a problem. In the best traditions of negotiators like Kevin and myself, we're not just stating a problem, bringing a solution. 
I think it's important to make the point that certainly there's no there's no resistance to this. This paper that Tom referred to has gone into the system. Sometimes government departments take their time about examining things and, and take their time about initiating the process, particularly where legislative change is required. But there is clearly an, a, an urgency here. You don't want a situation where disputes develop and there isn't an adequate system or a satisfactory system of resolving. Nobody wants that. And I would be inclined to think that, you know, it is, it is a matter that will be resolved. And I think I could say with some level of certainty that it will happen because, as I said, we're not trying to redesign a dispute resolution system here. It's, it's, it's well established. It, you know, can be traced back to 1946. And we had the reforms of 2015, which are well bedded down now. And there is no reason as to why that cannot simply be applied to these disputes. The, the real question is, is, is getting people to move on it and finding the parliamentary time in order to deal with the necessary legislative change. There is a need for legislative change. There's no question about that. It wouldn't be complex or detailed. It's simply taking out what's there and putting in what's elsewhere. Again, let me ask you what can says. I've seen this arbitration committee in the UK attempt to offer mediation because it believed that that would be a constructive step before it got into a judicial mode. But because that's not built into the legislation in the UK, I've seen ECs, you're probably by their outside expert advisors who are interested in billable hours as experts and turn down step and want to go straight into court. So if we can develop a system, you know, if we can drop EWCs in Ireland into the system of mediation first before judicial decision-making, then that would be welcomed by many, many of the large multinational companies we've been dealing with over, over the years. They would very much welcome that. Yeah, I suppose that's the difference between the system in the UK as I understand it and the system in Ireland. The Labour Court certainly now isn't a first instance body, doesn't have first mm. instance jurisdiction. Very, very limited circumstances, but for um, all practical purposes, it doesn't um, have first instance jurisdiction. Let me, and let me, no let me, that it would get a first instance jurisdiction. Let me add, Kevin, that... As one of the few Irish people with any degree of expertise in European work councils, I'm more than willing to help train any mediators to your place relation committee want to appoint. And yeah. I would be as objective as possible in that. Yeah, and just send your fee. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, look, look, I'd be quite happy to do it pro bono because, you know, it would, it would be interest, it would be in the best interest of the companies I represent. <laughs> Conciliation service, as it's referred to, of the WRC wasn't invented in 2015. There was a body prior to that called the Labour Relations Commission, which largely did the same thing. And historically, when the Labour Court was established about four years into its existence, it set up a conciliation service, which was part of the Labour Court. It's separate now for reasons that you just referred to, because the Labour Court doesn't want to be involved in mediation 
and if the mediation doesn't work in then dealing with the, the litigation, it's, it's, it's separate. But, you know, they've demonstrated capacity over the years to deal with all sorts of problems. And no doubt with a bit of expert tuition from the likes of yourself, Tom, which I'm sure people would be very appreciative of, they'll be able to deal with this. I've no, no question about that. And, and, you know, but I think the important point is that we get the legislation needs to be refashioned so as to provide for this. But as I keep saying, the architecture is there. Yeah. Yep. Kevin, there's a related um, question in yeah. there. Sorry, Russell, if I can interrupt yep. for a second. There's a related question in there on the them facility to ask questions as to whether an EWC would have the legal standing to take a challenge in court. And just to deal with that point, first of all, and then we can talk about it in the context of your proposals, I, I absolutely think it would have the legal standing to take a challenge in court. One relevant point to that is, unlike the jurisdictions, there's nothing in the Irish legislation that gives the body an entitlement to have its costs paid by the employer. So in a practical sense, that makes a challenge a lot less likely as well because the employees themselves will have to foot the bill. Whereas in other jurisdictions, they have nothing to lose in taking the punt or is going to be the one paying the, the bill on the challenge. The proposals you've outlined, I think an EWC would equally be entitled to refer something to the mediation process. And for the reasons Tom has outlined, I wouldn't see that as a necessarily bad thing either. If the employer can deal with things at the mediation stage rather than it going to litigation. Listen, can I also want to comment on that? I work for the employer side and have done for, for many, many years. And the answer to the question is yes, of course it would have standing. Article 10.1 of the directive talks about the EWC having the means required to establish the rights to which mm. it is entitled. And that therefore gives it legal standing. And by the way, that arises out of a case in the UK many years ago involving P&O where a judge suggested that they might not have legal standing. So it's very clear an EWC does have legal standing. Do they have a right to have legal costs paid? That's an open question. And an EWC has the right, generally, to be assisted by an expert of its choice. Oh, there is no, I'm talking about the subsidiary requirements, what may be contained in an agreement for the matter. Oh, does a legal proceeding, mediation followed by a legal proceeding, and the Irish legislation, by the way, says that an EWC has the choice to be assisted by one paid expert who has to be an individual, not an organisation, per meeting. So the question that arises is, would a mediation or a labour court hearing be regarded as a meeting? And let me put it this way. If the employer turns up at mediation or the labour court mob-handed with lawyers and then argues that the employee is not entitled to have an expert who may be a lawyer to assist them in that meeting, bit of a stretch, you know? And I'm being pragmatic here. There are no rules around this. I was involved in this issue with Emerson and CAC in the UK. And rather than have an argument about this, we agreed that the CAC hearing was a meeting and the company agreed to pay the lawyer, but as an expert, not as a lawyer. So there's a degree of pragmatism in these, in these things. But what we need to be careful about, what we need to be careful about, and maybe I've got some ideas around this, but not necessarily for today. What we need to be careful about is that we don't build into 
perverse incentives to allow people to run off the court because it doesn't cost them anything. There has to be limits. You know, every time I took you to court, Brian, you know, you had to pay my bill because you wouldn't cut down your hedge. And I didn't like your hedge. And I'm going to court and you have to pay. But then I go to court every week. So we need to be careful. I, I don't think we can argue that we don't, as employers, have some responsibility for allowing people to take us to court if we appear to be in breach of the law. And that can be done in the guise of experts. But at the same time, I think there has to be limitations on that. So uh, some discussion around this with the authorities would be helpful. Where I'm involved in practical issues, we've worked out ways of doing this so as to avoid the argument that here we are turning mob-handed you know, with six lawyers from Madison, and then we're saying to the other side, but you don't need a lawyer. It's not to wash, guys. And in any event, Tom, the traditional model in Irish litigation outside of just the employment relations world is that whoever loses the litigation is at risk of having to pay the other side's costs anyway. But yeah. Talking about is some other jurisdictions where it's even clearer that the the employees will be entitled to the costs one way or another, which is your legislation is nowhere near well, as, as extreme as that. Yeah. yeah, well, you know, I mean, as Kevin will well know, if we built into the legislation something around experts and reasonable costs, right, which would then give the Labour Court some flexibility or, you know, latitude in depending on what might be reasonable costs. So, for example, these shouldn't be complex matters. They shouldn't be complex matters. It should be fairly straightforward. You know, and reasonable costs might be a couple of days preparation plus the day of the hearing and stuff like that, right? I mean, this stuff is doable. It, it, you know, this is, these are not deal breakers, you know, and they mm. shouldn't be deal breakers. But all of this stuff is doable where we're, you know, based on our experience of what we know and with a bit of creative thinking, can resolve most of these problems. Just a couple of points without getting into the substance of debate on that point. First of all, there is no question but that mediation stroke conciliation is a meeting. No question about that. It's a facilitated meeting. It's not adversarial. So, you know, there really wouldn't be a need for people to come heavily armed with lawyers on both sides because, in fact, it would be perhaps more desirable if they didn't turn up because it's a meeting between parties with a trained officer uh, assisting them in trying to find agreement. So there shouldn't be any argument about that. Within the Labour Court itself, the Labour Court, unlike the general courts in, 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 in the Irish legal system, doesn't award costs to any party. But I think on the question of standing, I don't see any difficulty there in an EWC having standing because EWCs are provided for under the legislation. And clearly, even the legislation as it is now provides for a mode of resolving disputes involving EWCs. So clearly they have the standing there. Questions about what the costs would be and all the rest of it. I mean, that's an ongoing debate. But equally, I would be inclined to think that where there was an issue going to the Labour Court that involved complex questions of law, well, then it wouldn't be unreasonable for the EWC to be provided with funds in order to have some kind of equality of arms with the other side. Yeah, but just remember, Kevin, I mean, what you're talking about is the 
traditional Irish approach. EUCs contain representatives of employees from France, Germany, etc., who are used to having lawyers represent them in tribunal hearings, labor court hearings in France, in committee down to police and so on, in France, Germany, and elsewhere. So what we're actually going to see imported into Ireland is a chunk of European labor relations practices and traditions. And we, we can't simply say, well, this is the way the Irish system works yeah. because we're now dealing with... So we're dealing with a new piece of complexity here and we need to be open and creative in thinking about the way we deal with that. Now, for me, the ultimate solution is to find a solution to problems that we don't get into the labor court, that we can mediate them. And a lot of the stuff I've been involved with, mm. if mediation had it been available, yes. with a little bit of... Yes. It would, but it wasn't available. It wasn't. Yes. I would be inclined to think that just as presently, about 80% of disputes that arise and go into the system never get to the Labour Court because they're resolved at the earlier stages. Yeah. Right? And that's what you want to aim for. You want to aim for a situation where disputes don't end up in the Labour Court. And I think there's a substantial difference between a mediation process and a litigation process. And while people may be used to having being well-armed with lawyers in a litigation process in order to effectively work. The mediation or conciliation process is very different. It may be new to them, but I would be inclined to think that it could be a pleasant experience all around because it gives people an opportunity to air their grievance, to deal with whatever issues, and try and find an accommodation that both sides can walk away with and be happy with. Sure, you know what, Kevin? We could always wish to have the Asian hearings in the Guinness Hop Store, and that would probably help facilitate a solution. Yeah, maybe, but it's very expensive to her. <laughs> On that note, gentlemen, um, if I can step in, it's been enlightening listening to these fantastic insights. And I know from the comments that have come through as well that despite the fact that we've gone over a bit, the vast majority have, have, have stayed on and have really appreciated the conversation and the discussion. So again, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. We were delighted that you came to join us and it's been a great conversation. Thanks also to my partners, Brian and Deirdre. And on that note, we will let you go and uh, we'll see you soon for another webinar. Thanks. Thanks for listening to the Matheson Employment Law Podcast. If you have any questions or comments, please email brian, that's B-R-Y-A-N, dot done at matheson.com. This podcast contains general information about Irish law. It is not intended to provide legal advice on any particular matter and is for general information purposes only. You should not act or refrain from acting on the basis of any material contained in this podcast without seeking the appropriate legal or other professional advice. Tune in next time for another Matheson Employment Law podcast. For further information, visit matheson.com.